A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Kahn and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews of VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. I'm back again with Abby Hanscom and Angela Smagula. I'm Robin Fabiano. And we are going to debrief a little about the um, interviews that we did for podcast five. And we had two great interviewees, parents of now adults um, of people with disabilities who were pioneers in the inclusion movement in the early 90s. We heard both parents' recollection and memories from their experiences, how important community was and how important certain people were in the school systems. Um, And actually, Angela and I were debriefing a little bit right after the interviews and just saying how powerful they were. Angela, what would be your favorite memory of the interviews? I mean, I, as you could tell from probably my lack of yapping in that episode, I was just so taken with the arc of the story, sort of completely stunned, um, by their bravery um, in terms of just how they made it happen when it was really early, like early adopters, right? Early, early adopters. And even them as early adopters referenced that family in Hingham that were even earlier. So I I loved it. I thought it was was amazing. It's funny because uh, if you say to either of those guys, you know, like, oh, we think you're so brave. They, they don't, receive that uh, word in the way that you intend it, right? And so I think that's important to just reflect on is this idea that um, you're only brave sometimes if you have to be, right? And so there was an analysis for that family at that time, and that was the only choice that seemed feasible. And so they did it. And I think that's really important for teachers to understand when they're speaking with parents, you know. I think we hear that with um, children with special needs. Oh, they're so brave at how they handle their disability or um, people with disabilities end up being symbols. And um, I think when Leslie was talking about her feeling of the word brave, that that's sort of how she felt, you know, sort of um, a symbol where really she was just doing, as she said, what she thought was the right thing to do for her child and for her family. Um, And so I think we have to remember that too, as teachers. 
not make, you know, not put kids in that position where they're being so brave for doing what their everyday experience is. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was so interesting and I just made the mistake again already, but um, that it shows you that words matter. And so what we think is a compliment is actually an insult because why is it brave to just advocate for your kid? Like it's not super brave. It's just how it is. Um, So I think that it was helpful to sort of carve that out a little bit. Um, I thought it was also interesting, sorry, to pivot to the portfolio conversation and how um, there's clearly two perspectives on that about how that landed with families. Well, the portfolio that I was describing early in the podcast were those portfolio days in elementary school where you come in at the end of the year and you see all of the work from your child from September to June and you look at the development and those can be really painful for parents whose picture looks different or when everything gets hung up on the wall and there's one picture that looks distinctively different. Um, And I had lots of conversations with parents around how to make that feel really good and comfortable for for the for them so they can come in and experience portfolio day and be proud of their child and their individual arc of development but not feel you know left out or embarrassed or feel like they have to explain something you know among other parents of the class then later on in the podcast people were talking about the MCAS portfolio which for those of you outside of Massachusetts the MCAS are a comprehensive state assessments. And in 10th grade, you have to pass the MCAS at the 10th grade level to earn a high school diploma. And for those people who are not operating on a 10th grade skill level, you demonstrate your performance through a portfolio at whatever level you are through entry points and access points. And it's a ton of work for teachers. And it's often more of a representation of how the teacher is doing in terms of following the directions of the MCAS portfolio than how the student is doing. And then students earn a certificate of attendance. And that is really profoundly painful to many families. Yeah, Robin, you know, and I was thinking, unfortunately, I think, and maybe we'll talk about this in the future, but one of the unintended outcomes of the standards movement was that the push for assessment as the metric for teacher performance and student performance and school district performance caused there to be this this pressure that um, students with significant disabilities had to be evaluated and included in the evaluation mechanism that was developed for the rest of the state, which is important. And most states have a 1% cutoff that less than 1% of your um, population can be evaluated alternatively even. But the important thing is it kind of defaulted into a a project where it really wasn't evaluating the student's progress as much as it was the school district providing proof to the state and then the state providing proof to the federal government that they were aligned with this larger assessment law in order to receive federal funds. And so it became this kind of make work project as opposed to a genuine assessment of where a student was at. And unfortunately, it's very obvious to the people close to that process that that has devolved into that kind of a a system and parents can kind of tell, right? Because they don't ask us, oh, please show me the portfolio. 
um, you know, we have to remind people to come look at it. And if for those of us at the high school level, it is a becomes a really dividing um, conversation between families and school districts, because at some point you have to make a decision, is the child going to sit for the traditional MCAS? And if the child is not able to meet the 10th grade standard, <clears throat> excuse me, then maybe we should be using their time differently. However, then they don't earn the diploma. And that is, again, parents want their children to graduate with a diploma and feel like they've put in all of this effort and hard work and should receive a diploma like everyone else. Um, and it's a really tricky conversation. I do think we should just go back for one minute, though, and just say, you know, that whole idea of um, a student kind of uh, being someone's inspiration or being symbolically valued to the community as evidence of inclusion, but not potentially fully included, is a really important uh, theme that I took away from listening to the moms talking. And um, one of my favorite podcasts, if people ever want to listen, is a TED Talk. Um, by this woman named Stella Young. And her title is I'm Not Your Inspiration. Thank you very much. Uh, and she talks very clearly about why she finds that an, an offensive, um, you know, uh, structure for her to operate in. And it's a really good podcast. You know, it's very short, but it's really powerful. And I think it helped me think about how we include people meaningfully. Um, more and they really do talk about the the social theory of inclusion this idea that it's really about people right it's about seeing people as real people as opposed to seeing kids as like evidence of your district's compliance or good intentions or something like that and i think that's a big idea that those the both moms articulated in their own way uh for good or for bad frankly they probably had both experiences so and it was so powerful there feeling of belonging and what they remember in terms of the people in the school that paid attention to their children and were part of their children's lives in the parts of the play, both in elementary and in high school. Um, and for people who are listening, as you said, Abby, in the last podcast, those are really the places that we should be paying the most attention to because those are the teachable moments. And that's where everyone is going to feel the sense of belonging and community. And um, that's what we want out of inclusion. Yep. And I do think taking a page from other parts of the disability community, you know, we've seen a big shift um, in the Special Olympics uh, organization lately to unified sports. And it's a similar uh, uh, analysis that's happening for, for that kind of um organization too, this idea of meaningful participation with non-disabled peers, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit, but who are the peers of a student with a disability? And that um, can get complicated, just like effective progress can get complicated. And, you know, um, those are things that I think over time we'll talk more about. We have um, a unified basketball team at our district. And I remember having a conversation with the coach. Um, after a game where the team lost by a pretty big margin, he told me that the coach of the other team came up and complimented him because our school's team was a cohesive 
team and they had the rule of three passes to different kids before shooting and they um, called each other's names and they really made a purposeful effort to move the ball and give everyone equal opportunity. And his team had the general education, the partner players just feeding the ball to a student who stood under the net and then they all kind of stepped away and let the student take a shot and get it. And they won because they got a lot of shots in, but he was complimentary of the fact that our team really felt like a team and they were equally passing the ball back and forth. And that was a great compliment. It wasn't about winning the game. It was about both the partners and the people with disabilities from sharing the success together. So I thought that was nice. Another big takeaway for me was just how education is still so people-based, right? So we have all these laws and these regulations and these compliance requirements and all these lawyers sticking their nose in. But at the end of the day, it's a people profession. Um, And that was so clear from what they talked about, from the aid support that they received to the teachers that stood out to them um, by name, you know, like 20 years later. Um, And Robin, you work directly with Emma, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I was Emma's inclusion facilitator when she was an elementary student and an inclusion facilitator, again, for those of you outside of Massachusetts, is a special education teacher um, whose background is working with kids with more severe disabilities. And our role is really to facilitate the inclusion of kids in general education classrooms. So at that time, I didn't have an office. All of my students were based in their general education classrooms. And I went in to provide services and then supported teaching assistants who are working with the students. And, you know, it was interesting that Leslie made that comment about um, aides not being welcome because my very first year, I remember the classroom teacher not giving the teaching assistant in her room a place to hang up her coat. And we had to find another place in the building for her to do that. And I think, wow, we've come a long way. And it's amazing that the parent actually understood that dynamic as well, because I didn't think that it permeated outside of the classroom culture. Um, But Emma was great. So Emma, um, as Anne said, was talkative, fiery, um, super social and friendly. And um, she was really, truly part of the community in the sense that she had friends, people invited her over, her parents made a big Um, effort to include her in extracurricular activities outside of the school day. And she um, had an equal balance of her own curriculum where she was learning to read at a different pace than um, other classmates and then included in um, broad projects in in the class. And I think because she had a brother in the school, her family was well known in the school the teachers really did a nice job facilitating her inclusion across the board. And I think that made a big difference where at that same time, other students maybe in the building who had different behavioral needs or maybe weren't as talkative and engaging in the traditional way didn't have the same positive experience that she had. I just wanted to say, you know, a big takeaway for me is this idea about team meetings. 
And I think um, for people who are listening and thinking about kind of team meetings, you know, you can get into a rut after a couple of years and you've done 250 team meetings. And the the thing is to think about, you know, teaching is is a, a profession, right? So theoretically, we can be at the top of our game the day we retire. We get better with time. We're like a fine wine. And so the reality is, if you're thinking about improving your practice on how you lead team meetings or participate in team meetings, I think there was a, a note to take from those um, moms to say, wow, how, you know, how is our team meeting structured physically? Where are people sitting? How many people are at the table? And then what's the work of this team meeting? You know, to me, I was just so interested that they were like, I don't really need to hear another speech language person tell me that my kid has speech language issues again, please. And so thinking about coaching our colleagues to speak thoughtfully, uh, positively, constructively, but also succinctly is really important because the meat of the meeting shouldn't be that. It should be thinking about the development of the educational program. And a lot of times we run out of time before we even get to that piece of it. Or we, sh- we you know, we save five minutes at the end. So I was curious what you guys thought of that because I think we can always all improve in those areas. And there were some good takeaways from the parent perspective, I thought. I feel like I have been in the role of saying to people, you know, if we have speech, OT, PT, classroom teacher, BCBA in the room, and they each talk for five minutes, and we only have an hour, that's 25 minutes gone, just by giving an update of how things are going. If you have a strong communication with the parents, and you're doing a communication book, and you're showing data on a regular basis, you don't need all of that. And then you only have 35 minutes, as you said, Abby, to develop next steps. And that's really what people want to know. What are we going to do next? What's the plan going forward? You know, any new ideas? Let's think out of the box. Let's be creative. And that can certainly be lost when we're spending a lot of time just getting people up to speed. And those people already have that information. And both Anne and Leslie gave the advice to bring people to the meetings and not come alone. And I think districts often get really nervous when people bring advocates. And I think if we reframe that to a parent bringing someone else to be a second set of ears and not take that so threatening, um, you know, the meetings would be more productive. But I think that comes with time. It's, it's, um, it can be intimidating sometimes when an outsider comes to a meeting and maybe asks a question that, you know, feels, you know, you get, you feel like you're put in the position of being defensive and defending your program. But if you think about them just being curious, they're not part of the regular team, they don't know. um, I think that can be more productive. That also really resonated um, with me because I have had um, uh, team members on the school side get their knickers in a twist about Um, you know, bringing the next door neighbor, right? But the law says that you can bring anyone that has knowledge of the child to the team meeting. Um, And it also struck me when um, Anne said that she cried at every team meeting, right? So she's like obviously a fierce advocate for her daughter, very bright woman in the field, but it would be hard for her to navigate a team meeting in general, because she it was so emotional. 
And I think also it becomes, I hadn't thought about it like this before, but the idea that, um, you know, there's six people from the district, right, all with good intentions. And I thought both of those, um, both Leslie and Anne were so awesome about assuming good intentions at team meetings and really understanding the process. But um, it's a lot of people and then it's the parent, <laughs> right? And so it's, I think the concept that um, team meetings can be overwhelming has gotten lost in sort of all the, the rigmarole around planning a team meeting and the, the stress that's on the district to satisfy, check all the boxes and provide all that information, provide an overview, provide what's happening now, provide what's happening in the future, put it all in a document. Um, I think that that can be overwhelming to them as well. Um, so, you know, I think we should have a whole another podcast on team meetings um, is my takeaway. So one of the things um, that I was thinking about is that when we're looking to hire special ed teachers, a great interview question is, what do you do when someone cries at a team meeting? And I think it's very telling how people react, not only to the stress of having someone else in distress, right, but how they have come as professionals to think about what it means that someone's crying in a team meeting. Is that a good sign, a bad sign, just um, a, an, an annual occurrence? You know, and I think thinking about uh, teaching from that lens can only help to make you a better teacher and more effective for kids. And I think that bottom line, um, how we respond to people's emotions will inform later the, the cognitive parts of the process where it's decision-making around services. So important. Well, you said the word empathy at the last podcast, right? That That's it. I think so. Uh, probably combined with respect and high expectations, and you end up with happy kids and, you know, functioning relationships with people. But it's hard, you know. Um, so... In a in a in a shift from the norm, I'm going to sum up the podcast because I just feel like I want to keep talking about it, but I know that we have to stop. So, I mean, again, I think the biggest takeaway was so valuable personally to all of us, but also I think is just awesome to hear from them. But I think the biggest takeaway um, is just the human element and how important people are um, all along, like from from the aid which was obviously so critical to both of those women and their kids, all the way up to the, the principal, to the special ed administrator, what an impact an administrator can make. Um, at, at, you know, when Abby talked about gate opening instead of gatekeeping, um, that also was very impactful to me and I think it's very accurate. And, you know, without naming names, both Leslie and Anne were able to um, point out different people that made a difference. And they were different people at all different aspects of education um, from the superintendent down. So I thought it was great. I loved it. It's my favorite one so far. And, um, but we got to wrap it up. So thanks everybody for coming. We appreciate you listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.